What's good, family? Happy Sunday. We're so glad that you're with us once again. Listen, we're going to dive right into the Word because we have a lot of ground to cover today. We are in a collection called Essentials, and what we're talking about are what are the things that are absolutely essential to our lives of faith. And in this season, we're focusing on Scripture. Remember last week, we talked about what our posture towards the Bible should be and how posture is far more important than technique when it comes to approaching Scripture. Well, today we're going to continue in our collection. We're going to answer two questions today. The first, what is the Bible? And the second, what is the Bible for? Let's pray. Now, Holy Spirit, would you come and would you illuminate your text, your Bible to us in a way where we come alive, where we have a passion and intensity to want to pursue more through your word. And so, Holy Spirit, would you come and open our hearts today? We love you. We welcome you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. What? is the Bible? I think in some ways that could be a very loaded question. There's a lot of definitions of what the Bible is. Some people say the Bible is this. Some people say the Bible is that. Well, for the purposes of this teaching, we're actually going to frame the whole sermon around this definition that I found. It was actually put together by John Mark Comer in Bridgetown out in Portland. They did a partnership with Tim Mackey from The Bible Project and Dave Lomas from here in Reality SF. And they actually came up with this definition that we're going to use as a framework for exploring what is the Bible today. You ready for that? All right, this is the definition that they came up with that I think is super helpful for us. It's this. The Bible is a library of writings that are both divine and human that together tell a unified story which leads us to Jesus. Wow. Listen, let's break down this definition. We're going to go piece by piece. The Bible is a library. Why don't we start there? I think the first thing we need to understand is that the Bible is actually not a book. Despite what popular opinions might be, the Bible is actually a library. It's a collection of writings that were put together as a book. But we have to remember the Bible wasn't put together the way that we have it until long after the time of Jesus. Before then, it was literally a library of scrolls. Now, I think it's important that we think of the Bible as a library and not a book because it significantly affects the way that we read it. You come to a library with a very different set of expectations than you do with a book. Uh, Let me give you a few examples. A book normally has one genre. A library has many genres. And you read each genre very differently. For example, you read a textbook, a poetry book, a cookbook, a sci-fi novel, a mystery book very differently from each other. Uh, If I were to give you an example, if I had three books right in front of you, right here, right now, say one's a Harry Potter book, the next book is Mastering the Art of French Cooking by Julia Child, and the other is a textbook about quantum physics, you're going to read each book very differently. Harry Potter, you might cozy up, grab a beer, sit by the fireplace, just read it with some music playing in the background. You ain't going to do that for quantum physics. Every book we approach differently. And in the same way, the Bible has many genres that we are called to approach differently. Another example, a book normally has one author, 
but a library has many authors. And even the authors we read drastically change how we approach a book, doesn't it? For example, let's think of two Christian books, A.W. Tozer's The Knowledge of the Holy versus Bob Goff's Love Does. One book is going to leave you an emotional wreck, doubting if you're even really saved, and it's going to stir up your fervor for God in a, in a very different way. Another book is going to leave you feeling very inspired, uplifted, just wanting to love everybody. By the way, I recommend checking out these two books, A.W. Tozer's Knowledge of the Holy, shout out Ying, and Bob Goff's Love Does. And so one book has usually has one author, maybe two authors, but a library has many authors. Another example, a book is normally written all at once within a specific time period. But a library spans time and culture. You see, even the Bible was written in the span of over 1,000 years. Think about how much has changed in culture, in science, in worldview in just the past 100 years. Or what about even in just the last 20 years? I mean... It's crazy to me to think that kids these days won't know a single thing about internet dial-up or AOL or those phones with the really long cords that you use indoors. Um, I was talking to uh, one of our friend's children recently, a daughter, and she's only about seven or eight years old. And as we were talking, all of a sudden she's like, man, I wish my dad would let me have Snapchat. What do you know about Snapchat? He's like, my friend does Snapchat so well, but we're not allowed to have it. I'm like, man, seven or eight years old, I was only thinking about when's the ice cream truck coming. You thinking about, you know, Snapchat and TikTok? And she's like, yeah, I heard Trump's going to ban TikTok. I'm so sad because I can't even, I won't even be able to experience it. I'm like, wow, what do you guys know about the internet, about TikTok, about Snapchat? You should be doing something else, running in a field or something. But it's just so different how times have changed. Now imagine a span of one thousand years how much has changed about how humanity operates how humanity sees the world how culture is and so the bible wasn't written within one specific time period it was written in spanning different cultures and different times now all this is important to know when we approach the bible if we hope to read it the way that it was meant to be read Now, the thing is, every book of the Bible conveys truth, but they all do it in a very different way. For example, reading genealogies wasn't meant to affect you the same way it would when reading the Psalms. I mean, imagine you're in Matthew 1. Eliakim, the father of Azor. Azor, the father of Zadok. Zadok, the father of Akim. Akim, the father of Elihud. Oh, Lord, I love... Like, it's not meant to hit you the same way as a psalm would. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. I mean, it might... But I don't think the author was intending you to have a Holy Ghost Shekinah revival moment while reading genealogies or reading a list of tribes. Or maybe you weren't meant to feel particularly uplifted when reading through all 613 laws of the Old Testament. There's a purpose that the authors had in including those things. But it's different than the purpose the authors of the Proverbs had for their writings. That's not to say we can't have these powerful God moments in every portion of the text. But I think they were meant to be different. The authors intended something different. 
Even in my own personal now digital library, I have many different types of book, varying authors, genres, and eras when the book was written. And there are some books that I'll go to on my Sabbath when I'm in the mood for something light, when I can throw on some music and kick back and just enjoy a read. On the other hand, there are some books that I'll read when I'm feeling intellectual, when I feel like reading or studying or wanting to take notes, where I can't have any other distractions and I have to fully focus. I mean, the past few months, I've been reading a lot of books by N.T. Wright, an amazing theologian. And in those readings, you can't just, you know, have something on and just read it half-mindedly. You have to sit down. You have to have a notepad and a pen ready. You have to be ready to think and to study. On the other hand, there are some books that I'll read when I I need uplifting and encouragement. On the other hand, there are books that I'll read when I want to be challenged, when I want to grow. And right now I'm finishing up a book called The Color of Compromise by Jamar Tisby. It's about the church's history of compliance with racism. It's a challenging, sombering book. And so different books, different genres, different authors warrant different approaches, different postures towards the text i know we in our generation like to ask very often i mean are we supposed to read the bible metaphorically or literally and i think it's so much more we need to read it according to a genre we need to read it according to what the author intended and i think it's a disservice to the text when the first question we ask for example when we think about the book of jonah is did it really happen Did he really get swallowed up by a fish? Like, is this metaphorical or is it literal? I think the more important questions that we should be asking are, what was the author trying to communicate? What is God trying to tell us in this story? I mean, just going with the book of Jonah, for example, did you know the book of Jonah actually was written like a satire? Because if you actually look at the story, the prophet of God, who's supposed to be holy, who's supposed to do all the right things, is the only one in the story who's doing it all wrong. And on contrast, the wicked people in the story, who are supposed to be evil and do all the wrong things, actually repent and do the right things. And it's sad that when we look at Jonah, it's actually a story that should provoke the question, am I okay with God showing mercy to the people I hate the most? I mean, that's really the lesson there, especially when he showed me mercy. If you look at the context of the story, I mean, just right now, think about someone that you cannot stand. Someone that extremely, like you just hate that person with the passion. The question when you read Jonah should be, am I okay with God showing mercy, the same mercy that he showed me to the people that I hate the most, to the people that I feel like don't deserve it? Yet we get stuck with, this, with the question, did this dude really get eaten by a fish and survive? It does a disservice to the text. We have to approach literature with humility. I mean, take C.S. Lewis, for example, Imagine, you know, he has a very eclectic, very wide range of writings in his library. But let's take the the Chronicles of Narnia, for example, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Imagine if we approach that book more like a textbook. And we're so busy studying word structure and looking to jot down notes instead of getting imaginatively immersed in the beautiful story that it is. I imagine when C.S. Lewis wrote The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. 
He didn't want us to sit down and pencil and study it. He wanted us to get caught up in the imagery, in the beauty of the story. He wanted our imaginations to be provoked. I'll take another one of his books, famous book, Mere Christianity. If you've ever read that book, yo, you know that you need to sit down, read one sentence, think about it for a week. You need to ponder on it. But imagine if we approach Mere Christianity like an adventure book. And we have music playing in the background. We're barely paying attention. We're, we're light on our feet. It would do a, a disservice to the writing based on how, how the book was written and what the book was written for if we approached it in the wrong way. Now, I think this is helpful in looking at the Bible because it prompts us to say each book deserves our humility. Reading it according to its genre, according to what the author intended. And I think this is where most of us stop. I mean, I'm guilty as charged. We read a portion of the Bible that's frustratingly hard to read or understand, and we give up. And listen, y'all know when you need a new mattress, for example, you spend hours researching different types of mattresses and learn all sorts of things about mattresses you never knew before. I mean, even right now, I'm studying different way, different equipment that we need for church, for microphones, video cameras, and I spend hours upon hours researching. I know so much about cameras and microphones now, yet when it comes to the Bible, when we come to a part that is not easy to understand, when we don't get, we just say, Man, that sucks. I can't connect with it. Listen, I would encourage you to spend time doing the work to understand the Bible more, to understanding deeper what authors intended, to understanding genres. You know, a great resource that I want to plug that actually a lot of our teaching in this series is going to be adapted from is Bridgetown's Year of Biblical Liturgy series. Or maybe even looking at the Bible Project, they have phenomenal resources diving deeper into what the Bible is, talking about genre, talking about authors, and what each of the books intended. And so we have to see the Bible as a library of writings and not just a book. And we have to continue to adjust our approach based on the different genres, the different authors, the different texts. Why don't we continue with this definition? So we understand the Bible is a library. It's not a book. The Bible is a library of writings, this next part, that are both divine and human. If we look at Mark 12, 36, Jesus is speaking about David. And he says this, David himself, speaking by the Holy Spirit, declared, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. And so in this text, Jesus is speaking about David and what he wrote in the Psalms. And notice that it says David himself. So David being fully David, but it also goes on to say speaking by the Holy Spirit. In other words, Jesus saw the Bible as both divine and human. In other words, it isn't just a byproduct of human imagination or experience. It wasn't just David speaking from his own wisdom or his own experience. But at the same time, it isn't just a byproduct of dictation. Listen, if I ever wrote a book, I'd want someone to follow me all day long and write down word for word what I say. You know, I talk about my birth. It was a, it was a stormy night on March 24th in a little San Francisco hospital. 
You know, I, I'd, I'd want them to write word for word what I say, but this isn't how the Bible was written. David didn't just fall into a trance and write this down mindlessly. He wasn't just dictating what God was saying. But see, we, it was both human and divine. Now, theologians call this the incarnational model of Scripture, that even as Jesus was both fully God and fully human, so is Scripture. And I think the danger we fall into is when we emphasize one side more than the other. Tim Mackey from the Bible Project often refers to the golden tablets falling from heaven view. That the Bible just dropped out of the sky, perfect and flawless, without any human input or imprint. But the Bible never tries to hide from us its human side, that it's messy, that there are contradictions, that it needs to be contextualized with every generation. Nor does it downplay its divine nature, that there is actually an objective truth, that there is a reality of God, a truth of God that is actually existent. And so it is simultaneously God-breathed and human-written. Now imagine, I think a good way to understand this concept of the scripture being God-breathed and human-written is imagine a master musician playing an instrument. I mean, let's just say, for example, to help with the, the breathing illustration, it's like a wind instrument, right? Like a recorder or a saxophone. I remember one time, Krista and I were in a really big fight, and she wasn't talking to me the whole day. And we had to go to my parents' house because they are out of town and feed their fish. And so we go, and we're not talking to each other. We're mad at each other. And I remember I'm feeding the fish. Krista's sitting on the couch on her phone. And I just happened to see a recorder. You know those little flutes? You probably played it in middle school or elementary school i see a recorder sitting there next to her i don't know who was playing maybe my mom it's funny to imagine my mom just playing a recorder like just bored but i remember i grabbed the recorder and i remember when i was a little kid i was pretty good at the recorder but the only song i was really good at was um my heart will go on by celine dion titanic soundtrack shout out yo best soundtrack ever but i remember picking up the recorder and i just started playing and you know i was off key like it was bad but i remember playing this instrument and all of a sudden and it melted krista's icy heart and she smiled and started laughing it actually just disintegrated the fight that we were in and the conflict and we were finally able to connect that's the power of an instrument but imagine not an amateur recorder player but imagine a professional actually let's throw the recorder out i don't think it's it does this illustration justice imagine like a saxophone player or the french horn player imagine a master musician playing that instrument now there's beautiful music coming and you might ask the question, is the music coming from the musician or is the music coming from the instrument? And you would answer, yes, it's both. The music is coming from the musician, but it's also coming from the instrument. In, in the same way, the breath of God flowed through writers throughout history to form this holy text. I think it's a helpful illustration in understanding what it means that the scriptures God breathed and human written, that God was breathing his breath, his life, through human vessels to write this beautiful text. Second Peter one twenty one says, For prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, in other words, writers of the Bible, though humans spoke from God as they were carried along 
by the Holy Spirit. I think this is important for us to understand because recognizing the Bible's human inspiration helps us connect to it and contextualize it in our day and age. Yet recognizing the Bible's divine inspiration challenges us to submit to it even when we don't like what it has to say. And so the Bible is a library of writings that are both human and divine. If we go on, that together tell a unified story. Now, we all know that the Bible is full of stories. And actually, the Bible is broken down into three major categories. The first is known as a narrative category. It, it makes up for about 44% of the Bible. Think about the stories from like Genesis or Exodus. The next category is poetry, which makes up 33% of the Bible. Imagine the Psalms or Proverbs. And the last category is discourse or teachings, which is about 23% of the Bible. Imagine Sermon on the Mount or Paul's letters or the laws. Now, I think when most people think of the Bible, they actually think of it like a rule book. Like it's this guide that helps us know how to live right, how to be in harmony with other people, how to forgive and how to help us behave like good human beings. I think most of us think of the Bible as a rule book. But if you look, most of the Bible is actually story and poetry. Only 23% of the Bible is actually teachings about how we're to live. The rest of it is story and poems. Now, here's the thing that we have to understand. They're not random stories or poems or teachings that have nothing to do with one another. All of the stories, poems, and teachings in the Bible tell a unified story. I mean, even notice that in Genesis, the Bible begins with in the beginning. And in the last chapter of Revelation, it says, I am coming. There's a story in the beginning all the way to I am coming. And if you don't see that there's a larger story at work, you'll get lost in the micro stories. Tim Keller has this to say about our confusion with the Bible. He says, the reason for our confusion over the Bible is that we usually read the Bible as a series of disconnected stories, each with the quote unquote moral for how we should live our lives. It is not. Rather, it comprises a single story telling us how the human race got into its present condition and how God through Jesus Christ has come and will come to put things right. I think many of us who, especially those who grew up in church, struggle with this. Because in Sunday school, we learn about all these stories in isolation, right? Where the goal of each story is to learn a moral lesson. Like we learn about Noah and the flood. And the takeaway somehow is listen to your parents or God will flood the earth, right? We've simplified these complicated stories that are actually weaved into a beautiful, grander story, into simple life lessons. But this is not how the Bible was meant to be read. Not ever learning, for example, the story of Noah that in the context of the grander story of the Bible, this was one episode in the story of God's beloved people rejecting him and breaking covenant with him, even though all he wanted for them was paradise, was Eden. That this was one episode in the story of God's plan for redemption and getting his people back. You know, all that to say there's nothing wrong with introducing the Bible to our children. I mean, our little minds 
probably could, couldn't handle the, the grander narrative. Like all we could probably handle and make sense of were these small stories. But as we grow older, we cannot remain in that place where we look at each story of the Bible in isolation, where the goal of each story is to draw a moral lesson to make us better people. That's not how the Bible was intended to be read. We have to see the grander narrative. Now, I am a movie buff. I am a cineholic. That's what we call it. I just love movies so much. And in movies, you'll find two basic types of plot, right? There's a commercial plot where basically a hero is on a quest, goes through some difficulties, but at the end, he rises up. And it's usually marked with the rising crescendo of action, CGI, swelling instruments. I mean, think about Star Wars or the Marvel Cinematic Universe, right? Think about the Avengers. They're down and out. Thanos is lording his power over them. But at the end, they come back in this epic sweeping battle and they destroy evil and they rise to the occasion. That's a commercial plot. But the second type of plot found in cinema is what's known as a literary plot. And a literary plot is more about the inner journey. It's complex. Usually the ending comes and you had no idea it was even the ending. The ending is vague or confusing or maybe even a letdown. I mean, think about movies like Juno, like indie films like Juno or Little Miss Sunshine or The Lighthouse, some, a movie I basically saw recently. Um, basically anything from A24, right? <laughs> Like indie films are literary plots where it's very complex, where it's more about the inner journey. There's not this rising crescendo of the action. There's no defining ending. It's, it's very much about the inner journey. A lot of it is vague. A lot of it's hard to interpret and understand. And when we look at the Bible, most of the stories of the Bible are literary. They're not commercial. And I think maybe we think most of them are commercial because we cherry pick these epic heroic moments like from David's life, like his battle against Goliath. But we forget that right after that battle, he spent years of his life running and hiding in caves. We forget that his kingship was marked by affairs and murders. We forget that David's life didn't end with a crescendo of heroic action. Right? A lot of the Bible isn't commercial. It's literary. And it begs to ask the question, why are so many stories of the Bible like this? Why are so many stories in the Bible complex, confusing, non-conclusive? And I think it's because life is like this. I mean, life is rarely like an MCU film, like, Okay, if your life is majority like an MCU film or a Star Wars flick, like I want to make a movie about it. But most of our lives aren't usually like an MCU film. Most of our lives aren't packed with action, aren't packed with this rising crescendo of heroic moments. And while the Bible does end in a sweeping action-packed crescendo of Jesus coming back, destroying evil and setting things right, most of the Bible isn't like that. Because it reflects real life. That we spend most of our lives in the middle, in the in-between. I mean, really think about it. If you get to the end of your life, you'll probably have, you know, a handful of those moments, right? Those heroic, epic moments that people can make movies about. But if you look at most of your life, it's in-between. It's in the middle. 
But you understand that all of it serves a purpose in this grander narrative. You know, C.S. Lewis is most notably known for the Chronicles of Narnia, which is an amazing book, set of books. But he actually, a lot of people don't know this, he actually wrote a trilogy, a sci-fi space trilogy. And I remember in college, um, I was so excited, because sci-fi is one of my favorite genres, that I found this trilogy, and no one ever talks about C.S. Lewis's space trilogy. They talk about Narnia, right? So I remember reading this, these books, and the first book that I pick up, it was the hardest read of my entire life. I mean, it's, it's sci-fi, but I don't think it should be called sci-fi because it's more like science fiction politics. It's like talking about space politics and government laws and stuff like that. And so I get through the first book, and I'm, I'm really disappointed. Like, it was, it was really hard to read. It wasn't very fun. It wasn't very action-packed. Like, when you think sci-fi, you think X-Wings and, you know, Darth Vader and lightsabers. But it wasn't anything like that. So I read the second book expecting, okay, surely now there will be some action or something fun. Second book, same thing. Actually, they doubled down on all the things I hated in the first book. I'm like, I got to finish this, man. I got to finish. So I had no expectation going into the third book. I start reading it, same old, same old space politics, space legislation, all this stuff. I get to the end of the book, and the last few chapters, I'm literally gripping my seat with excitement, with tension. I'm weeping. I'm la- like, I don't normally do this, emote like this when I'm reading a book, but I'm weeping, I'm laughing, I'm crying when I'm reading these last few chapters. I put it down after I finish. Wow, that was one of the best trilogies I've ever read. And it's easy to dismiss the first two books and a majority of that third book as, you know, it's boring, it's not fun, it's not exciting. But all of those were necessary in telling the story that leads to this very beautiful crescendo at the end of the third book. In fact, if you read that third book at the last part of it in isolation, it wouldn't be as meaningful. It's because you read the rest of the story. And although most of our lives are literary, they're not action-packed, they're in the in-between in the middle, even though most of the Bible is written literary, where it's not exciting, where there's not a lot of action. All of it serves a purpose to get to this beautiful crescendo in the story where Jesus is coming back. He's setting everything right. There is a new Jerusalem. Evil is vanquished. We have to remember that all of this, all of this is part of the story. And so the Bible is a library of writings that are both divine and human that together tell a unified story in this last part, which leads us to Jesus. As we shared last week, the words of God found in Scripture were always meant to lead us to the Word of God, Jesus. And everything in these stories, everything in these poems, everything in these teachings, everything in these laws, in these genealogies, in these lists of tribes, testifies about Jesus. Now, it doesn't mean that you need to have a powerful emotional response to worship Jesus while reading about the list of tribes of Israel. But, I mean, you might. 
I remember one time I was actually reading a genealogy and I had this beautiful revelation that, man, God works from generation. To, and I remember having this emotional response, but I don't think the author intended you to have that emotional response while reading the tribes or the lists that the Bible often has. But it does mean that every piece of the Bible plays a part in leading us to Jesus. Even if you look at the grander story, all of it is leading towards this one moment of Jesus coming back. It's like in a movie, you know, there are moments designed for you to cry or to laugh or to think. You're not supposed to cry the entire movie unless it's Lord of the Rings, right? See, in the same way, all of Scripture Even though not all of it, you'll be having this emotional response. Not all of it, you know, you'll be crying or laughing or rejoicing or worshiping. But all of scripture is meant to lead us to Jesus. And so the Bible is a library of writings that are both divine and human that together tell a unified story which leads us to Jesus. And if we, if we define the Bible this way, doesn't it change the way we approach it? Doesn't it change our posture, even the way that we read it? And so that is what the Bible is. But the next question we have to ask is, what is the Bible for? And this is where we're going to park for the rest of the, the sermon. We're going to end soon. We're going to wrap up in a little bit. You know, last week we talked about how the Bible is not about information, but about formation. That as we read scripture, it's not to accumulate knowledge. It's not to accumulate information, but it's so that the scripture would form us more and more into the image of Jesus. Now, I'm going to talk about neurobiologists for a little bit because I know so much about neurobiology. Neurobiologists actually say the story is the basic principle for how the human mind works and operates. In other words, we're hardwired for narrative. Story is how we make sense of our world, of our existence. It's through stories we learn about the power of our choices, about right and wrong, about how things work, about what really matters, about history. And I think about some of your favorite communicators, even some of your favorite lectures or sermons that you remember the most. I guarantee... There was a story that comes to mind when you think about that lecturer or that communicator or that sermon. Why? Because we're hard drive to love stories. That's how we make sense of the world. That's how we understand things. You know, that's why we love movies and we love novels and we love music. They all tell us stories. And this is really important to understand. Story, the story that you trust will shape the person that you become, the values you hold, the way you treat others, the way you think about yourselves. And a lot of theologians have been using this term lately to talk about the Bible, to talk about the story of Scripture. They refer to it as meta-narrative. And the definition of meta-narrative is an overarching story that provides a pattern or structure for people's beliefs and gives meaning to their experiences. And so we have to understand that the Bible is a meta-narrative. It's a story that all of our stories collapse into, and it gives meaning and shape to our lives. In other words, the Bible is a story that shapes the person we're called to become. It answers our questions about the meaning and purpose of life, but it also calls into question every other story that we hear. You know, the world is telling us a story every single day. 
Every time we open social media, every time we turn on the news, every movie that we watch, every song that we listen to, every show that we binge, every book that we read, the world is telling us stories. And the world tells compelling stories. I mean, right now we're watching this documentary series on Netflix called Last Chance You. And they recently had a season about Laney College in Oakland and talks about you know the JUCO football uh, culture and system. And it's such a powerful documentary. And it's telling these compelling stories. But I think we have to ask, do these stories that the world is telling us, do they line up with the most important story of all, the meta narrative of Scripture? Do the stories of our culture match up with the story of Jesus found in Scripture? And now more than ever, we need believers to be wise about the stories that we align ourselves to because the stories you trust will shape the person you become. And so we see the Bible is an alternative story to the story of the world because the world's stories will tell you to hate your enemy. But the Bible story would tell you to love them. The world stories would tell you to look out for yourself because you have to take care of yourself. You have to get yours. But the Bible story would tell you to give your life for others. The world stories will tell you it's all about receiving, all about what I can get out of this life. You know, all the experiences, the pleasures of this world. But the Bible story would tell you that giving is better than receiving. The stories we trust will shape the people that we become. And so we have to be very careful about what stories we align our lives to. Walter Brueggemann, an amazing theologian, often talks about this beautiful concept, this kingdom concept known as the real, real. Some of you, if you've been around long enough, you know what the real, real refers to. That there's a reality that is realer than the reality that we see before us. That there is real, the things that we can touch, experience, hear, smell, the things that we can perceive with our senses, but there is a real, real. That there's a realer real than the things that we see before us. That there's a kingdom reality that is realer than the worldly one we live in every single day of our lives. And as I was thinking about this concept, that there is a realer story. There is a truer story than the story that we see here, than the story that we're told by the world. There's a kingdom story that is the real, real. For some reason, when I was thinking about this concept, I kept thinking about C.S. Lewis. I kept thinking about the Chronicles of Narnia, specifically the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe. And if you've never read the book, you got to read it. It's a powerful read, and it's so fun. But in the book, there's a wardrobe, and these four kids find this wardrobe in their house. And when they open the wardrobe, it's not just a closet anymore, but as they dive deeper into it, they enter into this magical land called Narnia. And in their, in their real world, things are very stark. You know, the world's on the brink of war. Everything's dark. You know, they, they're, they're living in this certain reality. But when they get to Narnia, they enter a real, real that's realer than the reality. They realize, shoot, we're kings. We're queens. We are royalty. We are warriors. We are conquerors. And they realize that they discovered who they truly are in Narnia 
because it was a realer reality than the reality that the world was pushing on them. And I was thinking, I had this moment, we were on a mission trip in Korea where we were visiting, um, well, we went to a couple places, but we were basically helping children who were less fortunate, who were struggling in their lives, who a lot of them didn't have parents, a lot of them didn't have, you know, the basic necessities that we have today. And I remember when we were there, I remember thinking, man, being here where we're not so overwhelmed by everything going on in life, where we're not worried about bills, about, about um, you know, everything that we're experiencing, about studies, about work, and we're just able to see what life really is about and where we're serving these children, where we're enjoying each other. I remember thinking, man, this is Narnia. This is the place we we're meant to live where we're completely tuned to what God is saying, where we're walking in harmony with him, where we're not distracted and we're not overwhelmed by the things of this world. This is the real, real. And the cool thing is this, that there is a wardrobe that takes you into the real, real. And it's right there in front of you. It's called the Bible. That this book, that this library, This text, this scripture is a wardrobe that takes us into Narnia. It takes us into the people that we are called to be. That takes us into a view of the world that we were meant to have. That takes us into alignment with the author of this beautiful story. And that we need not look no further than the Bible that's standing there right in front of us to enter into that wardrobe and tap into the real, real to understand how things are meant to be through the eyes of God. This is the power of the story of the Bible, that it's not just a book, but it's a library of writings that are both divine and human that tell a unified story that leads us to Jesus, that transforms the way we think, that transforms the way we live, and that leads us into the end of the story that the Bible promises. Listen, this week, once again, we don't have an elaborate action plan. It's simply this. Open up your Bible and read. It could be where you left off. It could be a new book based on what you're hearing from this message. But as you read, I want you to keep in mind the genre. Is it poetry? Is it a teaching? Is it a story? I want you to dive deeper into what the author intended in writing this book. Was the author trying to write this to inspire us? Or was the author writing this to try to call us to repentance? Think about the context. Who was the author writing to? Was he writing to us? Was he writing to the church? Was he writing to Gentiles? Think about what the the context of each portion of what you're reading. And I want you to do a little work to learn more about the context. And once again, look to the Bible Project, amazing resources. Look on Google. Shoot, you could find anything. But continue to dive deeper as you open up your Bible and read. And as you do, I want you to take time to align yourself to the story of the Bible and to enter into that real, real Even though everything on the outside around you might look like it's collapsing, like there's death and destruction, maybe the real, real that God is asking you to enter into is to see hope and to see life, even in the dead areas. 
I believe that when we have the right posture and we approach scripture with humility, it's like a wardrobe into Narnia. And we can enter into that real, real as God continues to transform us and transform everything around us. Listen, church, we're going to get more and more into techniques, into practical approaches of how to read scripture, but we have to get this down. And so this week, meditate on that as you approach scripture and we'll continue to pursue God in his word. Let's pray. God, we often get it so wrong. We get it so wrong when we think about the Bible and what it's supposed to be and what it's meant to do. But I thank you in this season, you're teaching us to have the right posture, the right view, even the right definition of what the Bible is. But I thank you that as we do this, it's not just lifeless studying, but as we study, as we dive deeper into the Bible, as we learn, as we contextualize, as we wrestle, that we are coming alive in ways that you have called us to come alive. And this book, this library, becomes a wardrobe through which we enter into a realer reality than the one we see before us. And so, God, we want to align to your story. God, we want to be transformed into your likeness. So would you continue doing the work within us as we continue diving deeper into your word? We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Awesome, church. We hope you have an amazing week, and we will see you next week as we continue diving deeper into Scripture.